Thank you for once again tuning in to another broadcast of Radio Blackout here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We have Living Writers up next uh, with T. Hetzel. Is a pre-recording with author Valerie Lacken. Uh, and that should be coming up to you momentarily. That'll be followed by Free Speech Radio News in an hour. And I'll be back on the air at 6 o'clock for And Your Ass Will Follow. I've got an interesting take on your daily workout. So come back for that. It's going to be a blast. Just waiting for this thing to start playing. Anytime now. Anytime now. You can do it. Almost there. Almost there. Welcome to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Valerie Lakin here in the studio. Valerie, welcome. Thank you. And um, I, I feel lucky because this is our our, our take two on the talking. Um, I think it was maybe two years ago with Dreamhouse. We we spoke when Dreamhouse, your novel, your debut novel, came out, um, and now you're back. Um, and you've got a short story collection, Separate Kingdoms, with Harper Perennial. Um, and it's going to be out in April, right, Valerie? March there... 29th, so oh, March... basically. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I see it. I see it written down there. So March 29th is the big release date of mm-hmm. Separate Kingdoms. Well, welcome. Welcome Thank back. You. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. And without further ado, I'll start with your short bio on the the back of separate kingdoms. Um, Valerie Lakin was born in Rockford, Illinois, and received a BA from the University of Iowa and an MFA from the University of Michigan. She has lived and worked in Russia, Poland, and the Czech Republic. Her work has appeared in such journals as Plowshares, the Missouri Review, the Antioch Review, and the Chicago Tribune, and has received a Pushcart Prize, the Missouri Review Editor's Prize, and two Hopwood Awards. The author of the award-winning novel Dreamhouse, Lakin teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So again, so glad to have you here, Valerie. Thank you. It's great to be back. Beaming here. I love being in Ann Arbor. Yes, because you well, you've spent like a chunk of time here, with between the the, the schooling and teaching. Yeah, um, I lived here for t- I think ten years, so it's re- it's always fun to be back and see old old familiar faces. And drive by the house. Oh, I know, I do. Because <laughs> that's what maybe a quick word about the house, because that was the inspiration for Dream House. Yeah, um, yeah. My husband and I used to live in an old house on the old west side of Ann Arbor, and um, a few weeks after we moved into it. A neighbor came over and 
told us that a murder had occurred in the house, which was sort of a shock to us and um, not a pleasant one. Uh, but but it ended up being okay because it uh, it was gave me the idea for my first novel, Dream House, and. Um, and then I spent, you know, a, many years writing it while living in that house. And then uh, the book came out and I moved away. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. That's, that's that. that. Exactly. All behind me now. <laughs> well, I, I love how in there there's going to be an addendum, like a, a, a back section of like questions and answers, a PS, that's the, the correct term, um, with you, Valerie, in, in when the short story collection comes out, Separate Kingdoms, um, inside interviews and more. And um, I love how in the, the first part of that, you say that um, when you went to Moscow, when you um, after graduating from the University of Iowa, you you headed over to Russia and you went to Moscow and you, you suddenly felt there that you had stories to write. And that was the moment where, because it sounds like when you when that person came up to you and said a murder happened in the house, like something shifted in you, and you were like, "There's I I sense a story here that I want to tell." And the same happened earlier when you were in Moscow. Yeah, I mean, I think I was always one of those kids who was always sort of doodling in a notebook and trying to draw pictures or write stories or something. But you know, the older that I got. Um, I don't know. I always liked language. I liked playing around with words, but I didn't ever really feel like I had any particular stories to tell. You know, just had a pretty ordinary upbringing in the Midwest and, you know, went to college and everything was fine. And and I took a couple of creative writing courses, but I honestly never even had anything to write about or I didn't feel that I did. I'm sure that I did, but I just didn't feel that any of it would interest anybody. And then um, a couple of weeks after I graduated from college, I, 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 w I had been a Russian major and an English major. And every year that I took Russian, I just sort of like felt at the end of the year, like, oh, I still can't really speak the language, so I better take another year. And so I ended up kind of accumulating a Russian major on the side without really intending to. And when I you know, was about to graduate, I felt like, well, you know, I, I still can't really speak Russian very well. So um, I decided to go there. And um, this was in 1991. And um, it turned out being the same. It turned out to be the same summer that the that the coup happened, where the Soviet Union came apart and and um, Yeltsin came into power. And so it ended up being a really exciting time to be in Russia. And how incredible! Yeah, <laughs> that must have been just as one of those experiences right when you leave college, going into the somewhat unknown. Because it sounds from from the introduction, the this section, mm -hmm. um, Valerie, you had said. In Rockford, there had been like this buzz, like it could be that the Soviet Union would target us first because we make these special machine parts that are important for the nuclear machine or something. Exactly. I mean, it was it was really strange. You know, I'm originally from Rockford, Illinois, which is just a town sort of west of Chicago, just a kind of a, you know, a machine shop, working class town where they make a lot of, you know, little metal parts, screws and bolts and stuff like that. And uh, there was a rumor when I was growing up that um, that our that Rockford, Illinois, of all places, was on the top 10 list of towns that the Soviets would supposedly nuke first. Um, and it just, just seems so absurd now. Did it you know, ever? Did, did anyone ever tell you who else was on the top ten? Right. No, we I, had no idea. You know, I, mean, yeah, I feel of like, of course, my, it wouldn't be like New York or Washington D.C. or anything logical like that. I don't know. I, you know, it was just one of those. I'm sure every town has its own crazy stories of itself. It sort of made us feel important. I'm sure. It's it's true that we were a town where. Um, a certain kind of like a lot of helicopter um, engine parts were made, and so I think that was sort of like the the only plausible 
idea behind it, but I do remember even like my high school teachers telling me that. And um, so I there think was you a, name him. Exactly. <laughs> I can't remember his actual name, and I probably would would have withheld it, but I really kind of oh. wish I remembered his name. Um, yeah, I had this one very fanatical high school economics teacher who was always kind of pushing anti-Soviet, anti-communist propaganda on us. And, you know, it was... it was, really took to heart oh, the 80s, like that, the Reaganomics. Exactly. <laughs> it was such the Reagan era. This this teacher was was quite the fanatic. I mean, he was actually a good economics teacher, but he brought all, all this other stuff into the classroom that was kind of inappropriate. I mean, he, he brought in um, two AK-47s once into class to show oh, us. Oh, I had no idea. That's did, what you meant. Okay. And, yeah, indeed. And he would give us extra credit if we um, brought in money or boots to support the Iran-Contras. So that yeah, the, and uh, we were just it, it was crazy, you know. Um, but I thought it was bad when Mr. Steffes gave extra credit in a Christian morality class for knowing who won like the last game between the University of Florida and <laughs> FSU. So that's yeah, that that yours sounds worse. I mean, yeah. it's kind of fun when teachers bring weird things into the room. But in, in Military any case, boots. he was it was a lot of propaganda, frankly, as as a lot of us digested in the '80s, I think, and the '70s. I mean, it was very much the Cold War era, and that was all that rhetoric was being ratcheted up under Reagan. But and, you revol- mm-hmm. you actually just revolted though. Like you actually went the opposite way. Yeah, I think he was trying to make us all good capitalists and um <laughs> And there were just a couple of us in the back of the room who said, you know, this just smells fishy. And <laughs> were, were you listening to like Bauhaus or what were you? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you we were in... absolutely, you know, <laughs> and um and so we, you know, I just I just decided that that I wanted to know more about the Soviet Union. And when I got to Russia, I knew that I mean, when I got to college, I, I knew that I wanted to take a, a challenging language. I always liked languages. And so I decided mm. just I would take Russian and see, you know, what what was going what the heck was going on over there. <laughs> and it, for yourself. And, yeah, for myself, really. And. I don't know. It just—I mean, in a way, the 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 fervor about the Soviet Union at that time was sort of like the fervor that we have now about the Middle East. The way that so many people have come to study Arabic, you know, people yes. are just fascinated. They don't understand what's happening. They don't understand how to engage with this part of the world, and and they want to know. They sense that it's important, but there's been such a, a wall up that that those countries are just sort of mysteries to us. And that's really the way that the Soviet Union felt to those mm-hmm. of us who grew up in the '70s and the '80s and before that, of course. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to know more about it. And, and so, you know, I was really lucky to be able to um, to major in Russian and then and then go over there and see what it was like. And you got a job translating. And, I did. And, and then with all that, when you, you mentioned Yeltsin mm-hmm. coming in and the, and the, the massive shifts and, and um, the changes, and you said that you noticed in the newspapers there and when you were working as translating, I'd imagine, that the stories were... Um, not always told completely, like competing versions of the same historical moment, and and um, and so I think it, that um, to quote you, Valerie Lakin, <laughs> as you sit here in front of me, um, that the very act, like where you said it was like incomplete knowledge, even though they were quote unquote news stories, um, the very act of ordering something into a story removes the chaos and confusion of truth. Stories make sense of things that in reality don't make sense. That's why we need them. Yeah. It's like you're the story advocate. I love that. It's like this should, <laughs> you should be out there leading the, the banner for, for short stories and stories in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's true. And Anybody who's ever been very, very close or inside of something that ended up being reported in the news um, has, I think, very often has the experience of saying, yeah, but that's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. And of course it can't be. Newspaper stories are so brief. They're so incredibly efficient. 
and they they try. You know, I'm not saying that that you know that journalists don't try, but I'm just saying that in a way, it's almost impossible to tell a complete and truthful story because inevitably you have to leave things out. And you know, it's sort of like if you collect eight pieces of evidence and only use four of them, you're already shaping the story. You're already not telling the full truth. And so um, I think that, you know, th that's one of the things that I experienced when I was working in a news agency in Russia that I, I realized that, oh my gosh, I had been trusting all these news stories all my life to tell the, the facts of history. And, and then I realized, well, there's so much more to history than what we find, than what we find in the papers or in the history books or in our classrooms. And I think that on the one hand, that was very unsettling. Um, but on the other hand, it made me realize, oh, you don't have to know everything and tell everything to tell a story. You just have to, you know, somehow shape a story. And that kind of gave me the confidence, I think, to to try to start writing stories. I realized that, oh, you're never going to be able to tell it all. And somebody's always going to tell you that you didn't get it quite right. That's just the way it is. That's just the fact of telling stories. And so then I felt freer to try. And And that there was also maybe like some piece of the truth and then you find the story to tell that piece of the truth. Exactly. I sort of part of me felt that there were stories happening in Russia that weren't making it into the newspapers and part of me kind of wanted to even just for myself record those stories in my notebook my notebooks and stuff. And um ultimately that's part of what makes me want to write a story is when I feel like oh hang on a minute there's something the rest of us are overlooking. There's something that we aren't paying attention to or don't understand as well as we should. And those are the things that I want to try to write about. And is this when um, the, the first story in the collection, Separate Kingdoms, Valerie, um, Before Long, mm -hmm. um, is, that, is that how that story, when, when did you write that one? It's, um, it's weird. Because it's, it's set in Russia. Yeah. Um, it's the first story in the collection. It's called Before Long. And um, I actually wrote it. It's a story about a 12-year-old Russian boy who's blind and who is... Um, going to go to the dentist for the first time. An uh, American dentist. Yeah, exactly. The dentist is an American dentist, and um, his mother is quite taken with this American dentist and has a potential, at least an idea, of a possible budding romance with him. And um, I, I, this story is completely made up. There's really nothing in it that is remotely related to my life or my experiences in Russia. I just kind of wanted to, um, at the time that I was in Russia, in the early 90s, Obviously, there were a whole lot of uh, Americans and other Westerners coming into Russia, mm -hmm. and a lot of them had very grand plans of how they could advance or help or improve Russia, mm -hmm. and sometimes how to make money off of Russia. I mean, I guess that was their primary objective in a lot of cases. But there was this attitude of there was this attitude of um, we know things that Russians don't know. Let's help the poor Russians, you know. And I kind of, yeah, I mean, it's sad because Russia is and, had, you know, had been such a proud nation. You know, they were this huge world force Empire. and whatever their flaws may have been in the Soviet Union, they, they did have a lot of, uh, they had a lot of pride in themselves. And so, I, you know, once you are there and you know people you love who are there and you realize the dignity of their circumstance, you realize obviously how uncomfortable it is and how inappropriate it is, it is for people from other countries to come in and try and tell them what to do. So the story was kind of trying to um, deal with the, the ways that um, kind of Western influence, Western interests in like perfect teeth and perfect, you know, perfect everything um, was kind of uh, influencing normal R Russian life. 
I, I love that. I mean, hearing you say that makes it, it makes sense also of Anton, um, be his blindness in a way, because the, the U S would be, well, tell me if this is dead wrong, <laughs> but the U S would be imposing what their beliefs would be best for the blind nation of Russia in some sense, or. Yeah. I hadn't know, even thought really. of it that way, but <laughs> like, <laughs> once you say it, it sounds incredibly simple, doesn't it? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no, it, exactly. It's such, I mean, a, it's such a beautiful story because there's many different, um, turns that it's making too so there's nothing straightforward about this story where we begin in a tomato patch and where we end up in a men's urinal um completely surprising thank you yeah i I, thank you i I, yeah i don't know where the story really came from but but yeah exactly i mean i think it has to do with 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 that period of when when the soviet union and russia when they were sort of cracked open and they were starting to when, when outside influences were starting to come in and they were starting to see their own world through the eyes of the rest of the world and they were starting to realize, oh, well, we don't have all the things that you have. Like for so long, they'd been shielded by the Iron Curtain and they didn't realize that they didn't all have cars. They didn't really think about the fact that they didn't all have, you know, a million throwaway plastic toys the way that American kids do. And, you know, there's something very unsettling about that about those years when they when they started to kind of begin to judge themselves mm-hmm. the way that we would have judged them and i think in the years since then they've become much more sane about it and they've started to sort of regain their own pride in themselves and say well that's how you do things in your country and this is how we do things in our country but for a few years there at first they they were doubting how they did things in their own country and just looking at how we did things and I th- it was you know it was fascinating but it was also, you know, a little sad, a little bit unsettling. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to hear more. Maybe we'll hear a, a, a couple of pages from Separate Kingdoms. Valerie, if you don't mind reading, sure, reading sure for us. Um, today on the program, Valerie Lakin is here. Her collection of short stories out March 29th with Harper Perennial, Separate Kingdoms. We'll be back. Sorry, closing eyes, no cutting down to stop. 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers today on the program. Valerie Lakin, her short story collection, Separate Kingdoms, is out with Harper Perennial March 29th. Um, Thanks a lot to Liz Wason uh, for being here in the engineering chair and to Nick Harp and to Richard for being behind the glass here in the studio with us. Thank you. Um, And hello to all you listeners out there. Valerie's entourage in the radio land. <laughs> K- Kelly Miller might be listening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Maybe maybe Rodney's listening. Yeah. Patrick. Should we begin to name sure. all of the yes, listeners? Yes, no, because then it would be the rest of the program, right? <laughs> well, those were brief shout-outs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless there's anyone you want. No, no. Okay, let's get back to the book, uh, shall we? Sure. Um, and maybe um, I'd love to, to hear... Um, some some Valerie and a quick question before because uh, this because I feel like when we talked about dream house these were stories that started coming to you while you were in Russia mm-hmm. some of them in, in in your notebooks and maybe you were also shaping them there and, and developing them more mm-hmm. and so the sto- these stories actually existed before that that moment by near the, your house in the Washtenaw Dairy for yeah Dreamhouse. it's true a lot of, some of these stories I started writing a long time ago and um and then uh, when I um, I, fini- I finished a story collection and then tried to sell it, and when I did, the, you know, a lot of publishers don't like to buy short story collections because they're not many book buyers buy them. They're, they're hard to sell. Um, and so a lot of times they'll say, you know, do you have a novel? Or, you know, and they'll, they'll do a kind of two-book deal where you, you have a story collection and a novel, and they try to make money off the novel and then kind of eat the cost of the story collection. Um, so they, they, you know, we did that sort of deal, but they wanted to bring out the novel first. So the stories were kind of done, and then I had to write the novel, and it came out. And then by the time that I, by the time that the novel came out, and it was time to start sort of looking at the story collection, I realized that a lot of those stories were sort of too old or I'd outgrown them or whatever. So I ended up chucking like about half of them and kind of writing new stories for about half of this book. So the stories in the book, Separate Kingdoms, are sort of, I don't know, they span, uh, I wrote them over the per- over a period of maybe 10 years, I suppose, maybe even more. Yeah, 10, 12 years. And, and which were which are the earlier stories? Would you mind? Sure. That story that we were just talking about in the last segment, Before Long, um, is one of the first stories in, that I ever wrote, and that I ever wrote, period. I mean, one of the first stories that I ever finished in my life. Um, and I wrote it the very first semester of graduate school um, for a workshop that I had at Michigan with Richard Ford. And I was really intimidated by him. And he was lovely. I had, you know, he didn't do anything to make me intimidated except, you know, except his literature, <laughs> uh, his books. Um, and, and I sort of thought of him as, um, you know, this... In my mind, he was kind of this sort of like Hemingway tough guy, and I, I thought he would like, you know, like a kind of nice outdoorsy story about male characters. And so I literally just sort of set about writing a story about a boy character who was kind of, I was thinking a little bit of like Hemingway's Nick Adams stories, and um, and that's the story that came out of it. And so is that, so that is interesting, because I noticed that you have um, like the the women's magazines mm-hmm. in in that is like an early, like for in, in Before Long, um, that's the important part that Oleg is actually describing to Anton, who's blind and can't see, about um, like a the, girly magazine, like pay, Playboy. Yes. Yeah, the Russian version of Playboy. Yeah, and then oh, so that makes sense. So that was like that. That was a 
that that was a, a Hemingway-esque or Richard Ford sort of uh, movie. And because there's also when <laughs> it's funny, Valerie, because when uh, the the story uh, where the the couple is going to to Russia to adopt mm-hmm. um, family planning in family planning, one of the opening scenes also is I think um, there's a a magazine rack with the girly magazines on it's it prominently, true. and I was like. What is this about well, Russia with the that girly magazine? The funny thing about Russia was at the time, <laughs> I don't know what this was all about. I think that like a lot of European countries, they were just a little bit more comfortable with the, the nude female form than Americans are. And um, I remember their, you know, their, their images, their icons of the Virgin Mary were always topless. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I just found that very strange, you know. But to them, and there it was, was no baby Jesus in the frame. Uh, often he would be nursing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah in 3D. <laughs> And, um, I don't know. It was my Puritan American upbringing, sort of. But I. Um, but anyway, there was a, a time period in the early '90s in Russia where um, uh, plastic bags, like plastic shopping bags, like we have, um, were sort of a new thing and kind of rare. And they, you'd have to pay for them, and they were just sort of a flashy new thing, um, just to have a normal plastic shopping bag. And um, they would um, print things on them. And sell them, like not in stores, but as items, as products themselves. And one of them that was very popular had a a, kind of a, it was basically like a Playboy kind of image on the side of it with this woman sort of half clothed. And everybody would carry them around. Grandmothers, grandfathers, little kids were carrying around this like Playboy image on their, (laughs) on their, yeah, on their shopping bag. And they just didn't think twice about it. But for all of us Americans, we were sort of always doing a double take. (laughs) And throwing your scarf yeah, over the yeah. Virgin Mary. <laughs> and there were, yeah, there were a lot of kind of trashy little up, upstart magazines, I think just because they hadn't been able to publish whatever they wanted before. And so there's this flourishing of just every single kind of publishing, every single kind of weird product. They were just like, we haven't had any of it. We're going to start all of it. And it was kind of this indiscriminate flooding of the market with all sorts of kind of trashy little items that, that were just novelties at the time. And the writer's eye, you you mm-hmm. notice these, and they're, they're in your notebooks, and now they're part of the stories. Yes. Yeah. So what 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 are you going to read for us, Valerie? I'm going to read um, just a couple pages out of a story that's called Map of the City, and it's um, it's set in Russia. Only about half of the stories in the book are set in Russia, but since we've been talking about Russia, I'll read something from one of those. Um, and it's a story that is set um, it's set in Moscow. Uh, during the early '90s, mostly around the time of the coup that happened in 1991. And uh, the narrator is a, a young woman who is not me, but uh, had bears, bears some similarities to my experience, just sort of a, a 21-year-old um, recent college student uh, working in the city. And uh, the story is kind of geographically structured. Each section is um, set in a neighborhood of a different metro station, and so there are metro station signs as graphics in the text. Um, and so I'll just read um, a couple pages from a passage that takes place soon after the coup has happened and things start changing. The country no longer exists, but the city remains. A country is just an idea, its borders only visible in your mind and on maps. But the city is real, noisy and rank, covered in slush and transformed into one vast flea market. Every busy corner or underground crosswalk is jammed up with people selling whatever they can. Against the November cold, they hold up blankets and coats, TVs and umbrellas, new products they were given instead of salaries, or old things they've decided they can live without. It's the season of 300% inflation and disappearing pensions. The season of 18-hour-long nights. The season of Bush's legs, huge American chicken legs processed and frozen in plastic, sold cheap from the U.S. as aid relief because Americans prefer white meat. 
When Eddick balks at their size, I say, we've got radioactive chickens, and I get a smile. My American summer clothes are useless, so I've cobbled together an all-Russian wardrobe, which means uncomfortable pleather shoes and tight polyester sweaters in ghastly colors not found in nature, short skirts, thick tights that bunch up at the ankles, and a broken zippered coat that's thin as a blanket. And even in this, people stare at me and know I'm an imposter. In the subway stations, veterans, gypsies, and amputees have started planting themselves in the corridors to beg, clogging the already jammed traffic flow as people struggle not to step on them. Some reek of urine and alcohol, others have signs explaining their plight, others are cleanly dressed with their uniforms on and their medals displayed on velvet pads as proof that they should not be penniless. The Russian word for them, bomji, comes from our word, bums. Like everyone else, Edik walks past them with alarm and shame, and once they're out of earshot, he says to me, I guess you're used to this, but we never had this. They've all heard about our hordes of homeless people. Crime has arrived, too, both petty and semi-organized. I still feel safer than in the U.S., but everyone here talks of pickpockets and street punks and mafiosos who demand payment from every kiosk owner or else burn the kiosks to the ground. They smolder along the sidewalks in the mornings. What I do is throw parties. It's the most unembarrassing way to feed people. I say, bring your friends, anybody you want, and I load up the table and put on some music, and they eat and fill the room with Russian words, and they teach me things like how not to piss off shock clerks. Tonight, I've made grilled cheese sandwiches, deviled eggs, and fried potatoes. They are pickled, there are pickled vegetables, vodka, and dollar-a-bottle champagne, waffle cookies, and those awful little round bubliki. The custom here, at least right now, is not that the food goes together in any particular way, but that you fill the table, empty the cupboards, offer up everything you can find. I'm okay with that. Tonight, they're asking me about supply and demand, because I said something offhanded like, the more rubles they print, the less they'll be worth. And a few of them looked at me like this was gibberish. Maybe I said it wrong. But a ruble's a ruble, says a girl at the end of the table. She's not an idiot, not naive. She just hasn't been taught year in and year out that greed is the only reliable rule on the planet. I hesitate. Do I want to be the person who teaches th her that? But the lesson is already breaking out in the streets. Thanks, Valerie. Wow. So that, it, I, yeah, that seems so closely knitted to what I might imagine some of your feelings were with, which I know is the worst thing for a writer. Like, it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> of course, of course. But um, it's it's interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask you when we were talking about you going over there right after college, which seems like a really, also a brave thing to do. Um, but sometimes when people say that, it's like, it doesn't seem that way because you're like, well, it's what I was going to do, what I had to do. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know if, if that's how you feel, but I wondered if you would feel like if you stood out so, so much and that feeling of being an, apost uh, an imposter. Um, yeah. And then you, you actually read that section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, I'd, I felt very safe there, but I think to my, to people back home, they thought this was a very strange thing to want to do. And, and I think they thought it was a little dangerous. Maybe it Maybe in certain ways it was, but I, I felt very secure and I felt very taken care of by by the uh, the Russians I knew who were incredibly welcoming and just very uh, just always looking out for me and, and making sure that 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 I was safe and that I was doing smart things. And um, and yeah, so I think it was a it was a an eye opening experience in many ways, but I never felt I didn't generally feel very I don't know, I didn't feel courageous. Exactly. I just felt adventurous, I guess. 
And maybe that being an imposter mm-hmm. is also a position of the writer often in being outside of things. Yeah, I think that there's a, a weird um, tendency for writers to come out of um, positions where they where they're not entirely comfortable. Like I think there's a, there are a lot of great writers who are immigrants or the children of immigrants or who have moved from one social class to another or who for whatever reason don't fit comfortably into one cultural environment but rather find themselves uh, split between two kinds of environments or more. Um, Nabokov is kind of the classic example of this. And when you read his writing, you know, he, he, he uh, you know, was raised in Russia and then, you know, lived in Berlin, lived in England, lived in America, lived all over. And, uh, you know, no matter how well he spoke the language or understood those cultures, he was always an outsider. And even within Russia was somewhat of an outsider because of his high social class at the time. And so I think that, you know, you, you can tell when you read his writing how closely he's observing every little detail of every social situation because uh, that's what an outsider does. That's what somebody who's trying to fit in or wants to fit in or wants to no. slip past the, the, the gates, you know, or slip through the door, uh, wants to be sure they get right or know how to fake uh, and I think that so I think that kind of experience, however uncomfortable it may sometimes be, is great training for writers. And I think, therefore, maybe writers even gravitate toward it. Let's take a short break and we'll be back today on the program. Valerie Lakin, her short story collection, Separate Kingdoms, out soon. End of March. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today in the studio, Valerie Lakin, her book, Separate Kingdoms. Uh, it's such a lovely short story collection. Thank you. It's just the, the stories are, I know, it's, like, it's a great lead in, isn't it? It's so lovely, yes. Valerie. Long, meaningful pause. <laughs> <laughs> Will you put that on my uh, my wake up message? So I hear that every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and so the for the second the second um the well the story that we just heard mm-hmm. part of um Valerie is that was that one that you also wrote in the time there or was it one that came to you um, when you were in Ann Arbor yeah, or it's something that I actually that's the last story I wrote I wrote that story just about a year ago right before the deadline for turning in the so book in Wisconsin then yeah I wrote that story in Milwaukee I think um I had wanted for a long time to write something about that time period in Russia, like specifically about the political events that were happening that the, in like 91, 92, 93, and the so, sort of social upheaval that was happening. It feels so immediate. Thank you. I, that's kind of, I mean, I kind of just wanted to write a sort of love story to Moscow and to that time. It's something very nostalgic. 
And um, I'm not even sure, you know, I don't know. I don't know how the story succeeds. But for me, it was just like born out of that impulse to sort of uh, draw back up all those memories and kind of try. It was such a confusing time and it encompassed so many different aspects, you know, politics, uh, social change, uh, you know, my own personal things, the stories of my friends, so many different developments that I wanted to kind of throw into one story. And it becomes a sort of messy bundle. But but um, I don't know. In a way, I'm, I, I like it anyway. Is that <laughs> so you should um, is, now? Is that why you did that structural device of using the metro stops? Was that a way to move through it like geographically to shape these pieces that you wanted to talk about that you felt were connected. Yeah, in a way, I just wanted to write a story about the city at that time, and so um, each each section is in a way kind of a short short story. It has its own little um, beginning, middle, and end, and so I think of it as a kind of cycle of small stories that come together to make one kind of bigger picture, one one sort of mural of stories. That seems like that might be great for a film, too. Have you <laughs> Would ever... you like to make it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> First, a camera. <laughs> and then we, we shoot. Um, but but I, I, I love how you also say there's this beginning, middle, and end with the short stories. When, you're, when the ideas are coming to you, Valerie, are they... When you're starting to... Like, you feel like the urge to start writing a story, like uh, the neighbor says... Someone was murdered in this house, for example. Um, at what point are you seeing the arc? Or is it something that there's like uh, maybe those false mirages of... Yeah, exactly. No, it's very, the, the mirage is a really great uh, way of, of talking about it because definitely when I start with a story idea, I often have a kind of a mirage image ahead of me that I think I'm working toward. I say, oh, that's what the climax will be or that's how this story will end. But when I get closer and closer to it, you know, the more that I develop the story, the more I realize, oh, oh, that original idea was that's not going to work. I have to have a different kind of climax or a different sort of ending because you learn things as you write, as you write your way through a story, you, you, you discover stuff about those characters and their situation and your own attitude toward them that, um, you didn't know when you started off, when you set off on that journey with toward the mirage. And so a new reality or a new inevitability imposes itself on your vision. And then is it about also keeping going at that point and then the going back to see at the beginning what threads or what pieces are still with the old yeah uh, mirage idea exactly i mean and we mentioned richard ford before and actually this is something this is a piece of advice that i i use over and over again when i think about my when i when i try to write he said that really we write stories from beginning to end and then from the end back to the beginning using what we learned along the way and I think that's exactly what or how I do it is, you know, you kind of you write your way sort of semi blindly, just sort of kind of groping your way toward that mirage. And then once you get to the actual destination, you go, oh, that's what this story is about. And you have to go back to the beginning and kind of alter and adjust and and, uh, you know, uh, um, amend things so that they fit to that final vision. And Richard Ford is coming to visit. Is he? I think later in the term. Great. You should talk to him. 
Yes. <laughs> I'll tell him you said so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. He's supposed to come on, but maybe he won't back out if he knows that you, you're um, endorsing it. <laughs> I don't think I carry any weight with him, but he, but he is a, he's fascinating to talk to. Yeah. He knows a lot about, I mean, obviously, but he's a, he speaks very interestingly about fiction. And and how do you how do you find the that teaching is impacting the writing of the fiction now, Valerie? I guess besides the time factor, maybe like what your uh, subconscious is working on, mm-hmm. it might sometimes be teaching. Or but but talking about writing, you're so articulate about the ideas themselves. Um, I think. Um... One thing about teaching writing that does influence my writing is, I mean, A, I think that over time you you gain a a clearer understanding of how stories, how narratives function, how how you can create tension within a scene to draw a reader forward. Um, but you also, if you teach a whole bunch, um, you, I, I think I become a little maybe too kind of acutely aware of the patterns that often come up over and over again in fiction, especially short fiction. You see it more clearly maybe. But, um, and so when I go to start writing my own stories, I go, I, you know, I think I have a great idea. And then I start to, you know, make a certain plot turn. And then I think to myself, oh, everybody uses that plot device, you know, cause I've just seen so many hundreds of stories. And, and, um, and, and so I, you know, I start to think I can't, how can I, what can I do that's new? What can I do that's different? And so I think it in some ways, makes me feel a little defeated or a little uncertain of what else I can do. But that, I think, ultimately makes me try to challenge myself more and to come up with new ways to, to write things or, or, or new kinds of stories to tell. And that's partly also what I was trying to do with that Map of the City story, was to try to find a different story structure, you know, to just try to find a way to write a story that um, just wasn't following this standard plot arc, but was rather kind of maybe spreading out in different directions. Yeah, with the... Because when you said that, creating tension to draw the reader forward, I was mm-hmm. like, ooh, yes, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and then, um, but but that's what I was also wondering, if by being able to see and name all these pieces of how something's built and how it's working, then the what you just said, that challenge of not wanting to take that same turn and and then I guess it's looking to maybe not impose something on but maybe see like trust the character or trust what you've built so far to see or or, subvert the conventions a little bit I think that you know I think that if you teach a ton of, of fiction classes you know maybe it's a little bit like the way that I don't know that like dermatologists feel about skin. You know? I'm like, sure it is. <laughs> we all we all look at skin and say, "Oh, she has beautiful skin," you know. But I'm sure that if you're a dermatologist and you spend you know 40 hours a week looking at people's skin, it becomes a little demystified, and you you know what it looks like under a microscope. You know all the different varieties of it. And I think that th- that's the danger of teaching a lot of fiction workshops is that in a way it kind of demystifies stories or it can. And you, it's, I think it's, it's essential to both the writer's life and the, the writing teacher's life to, to, to somehow maintain a sense of wonder and, and surprise and, um, I don't know, vitality to, to your approach to, to stories. You know, you have to kind of always still believe that there is a new one waiting to be written and a new one waiting to be told in a way that nobody's ever done before. So, you know, you keep, you, you still hope for that. 
And is that also about looking for like new people to add into the writing family so that people that are so unlike how you write, you know, I, yes. that's weird because it seems like what I'm saying is, oh, do you look outward for more um, of like those writing ancestors or people that come before? Or is it more of a, a sort of a an interior search I, where you're looking for whatever that spiral is inside your own writer self. Yeah, I think it's both. One thing that I've been doing recently was uh, is just to kind of look to other art forms. Um, you know, in the way that Stuart Dybeck, for example, I think often you can see in his stories that he's functioning not along narrative structures as much as along musical structures. And, um, and you know, one of the things that kind of informed some of these stories was just getting into book arts um, works. And so looking at the way that text can be materially arranged on the page in different shapes and and, um, and how that influences the narrative. So just kind of finding other influences beyond standard stories. And so so the the last two stories in the book are also in the, chrono, the chronology of it. They were, um, the last story also was one of the late editions or was that one of the... That the was an earlier story stories as well. It just so happened that I was interested in that in messing with structure at that point I to was. see how it influences. Well, let's talk a little bit. We'll take a short break. Mm-hmm. We'll start with that. Okay. Valerie Lakin, her short story collection, Separate Kingdoms, is coming out this March 29th. You're going to want a copy. This is Living Writers. We'll be right back. Hey, wake up. Your eyes weren't open wide. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Valerie Lakin. Her short story collect- collection, Separate Kingdoms, is coming soon, March 29th. I'm so excited to see also the, the how it looks. Have you seen how it looks? Because what we're holding here in the studio, our, our galleys are like the, the blue line. Well, the advanced the, reader the copies. Advanced, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's orange. Because we're advanced readers. No, just kidding. I feel like we're in the, <laughs> we're the, yeah. the first grade. We're AP group. readers. Yeah. 
<laughs> that is truly advanced. I was still in first grade. I'm like digging in the dirt, right? Um, but yeah, so this is so. Is it? Does it actually look like the image that they're, yeah, they're beaming it's, onto the? Yeah, cup? it's orange with yellow circles all over, or sort of pale colored circles all over it. Did you? Um, did you work closely with? Well, we should. I should say thanks mm-hmm. to Gregory and thanks to Julia for sending um, the, the copies along. Um, did you? How much of it, you said that when you came back to look at these stories, you felt like that some of them didn't belong in this collection. Does that mean that, and that you'd kind of out, outgrown them or the story? Well, in, a way, in a way, some of them I just felt like, yeah, they weren't as good as, as the more recent stories. And so I wanted to just write newer stories to replace them. But also, I mean, I really believe that a short story collection or the story collections that I like are kind of thematically linked in some ways. And so a few of the stories just didn't quite fit in with some of the themes that I had in mind for the book as a whole. And so I tried to develop new things that might fit those spaces better. And it probably would feel more authentic for the moment because you're talking about this this book and it's just coming out in this present moment for yeah. for us mm-hmm. um and so i think to make it uh, that same for you that seems necessary to have yeah. yeah it's definitely fun to have some new stories brand new stories in it it feels uh, i don't know you just feel more attached to the most recent you always think that the last thing you wrote is the best thing you wrote well <laughs> and, and are you so are you writing a lot of new short stories valerie or are you because now having dream house out there as well is that like a form that you're also in love with, or? I when I when I finished my novel Dreamhouse, I I really did not feel like writing another novel for a long, long time. I thought, I mean, that was it was very hard for me. I think I'm much more of a natural born story writer than a novelist. Well, you were researching Alta Gazunga, if I recall. <laughs> like you were like mired in lots of research for that. I guess so. And um, so, yeah, but so I think I've gone, I've gone past it. I, I wrote a number of stories after that novel and I'm still working on stories, but I also now am kicking around an idea for a novel. So I guess I've, I've forgotten enough about how awful it was to write a novel that I kind of want to start another one. And what, but what would have like, yeah, it, um, <laughs> nice, <laughs> very articulate here today. <laughs> it must be, I'm going to blame the caffeine <laughs> uh, that I've, I had too much of, um, but but Valerie, when you say like going back to the is the novel to, to head on, is it because like a story requires it then? Whereas some some things you're like, no, this this is this is a short story, so it just yeah. Felt to necessary. me, it's always yeah. Everything depends on the idea, and sometimes you don't know when you start writing an idea what form it will require. But a lot of times, as an idea comes to me, I, I already kind of feel like, oh, this is about a 30-page idea, or oh, this is about a seven-page idea. And that helps me to, to kind of manage it and to map it out in my mind. Uh, and so the idea for the novel just, you know, I knew pretty early on that, oh, this is way bigger than a short story. Whereas most of these stories, um, you know, I kind of felt like, oh, this is def- definitely a short story. I always want to write the shortest story ever. I, I dream of writing a short, short story that's like two or three pages long. But every time I try, they end up growing and being like 10, 12, 13 pages long. I'm not capable of it, I guess. What, what a, I feel so sorry, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> well, so does this mean you already have already a bunch of stories kicking around for another collection? Yeah, I'm working on a, a collection of, they're either going to be linked stories or possibly a novel in stories that's set in Thailand and has to do with um, the disappearance of a tourist boy from a tourist resort and kind of how that disappearance uh, impacts, affects all the um, the different workers at the resort and the different um, um, tourists who are staying there. 
So, so, but it's coming in these linked, that might be linked stories. Yeah, yeah. So something, I guess, a hybrid between a novel and, and stories. Yeah. Maybe, that, maybe that's my mode. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, and it's, it goes along with what you were saying about wanting like these, these themes to unite the mm-hmm. collection anyway. So that would be the shirt. When you first started to say that, I thought, oh, like Jesus' son. Mm-hmm. But now exactly. the linked stories are more that, up that rally. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of an unusual genre, the linked story collection. But I think that you're seeing more and more of them, partially because I think publishers feel like they're closer to a novel so they can, you know, one of the things that's hard about story collections is that they're hard to review and hard to talk about because they're, you know, if they're done well, they're kind of made up of disparate elements, different, all different kinds of stories. And so when you read reviews of short story collections, it's often, well, there was this one story about such and such. And then there was this other story about such and such. And, you know, if the reviewer is very, very, you know, has enough time and is is a really sophisticated reader, they can sometimes pull together and say, oh, and actually the bigger picture here is X, Y, or Z. But um, that takes, you know, quite a bit of time and skill. And, and it's not something that every reader can immediately, you know, read a book, read a short story collection and process that and, and then, you know, call their best friend and say, you've got to read this story collection and in one sentence tell them what it's about or what it's doing. It takes a while to talk about a story collection. And I think that's why the word of mouth on them is harder to spread. And Valerie, do you think, because I, I would think that some sh- short story collections are that, like these, like literally se- separate universes mm-hmm. in a way that maybe um, if there is something that's uniting them, it might even not be known to the writer. Yeah, I think for the first several stories, you know, the writer might not realize. I think it's almost better if the writer doesn't realize at first, because otherwise the themes can seem to be overriding the stories. Um, but uh but I think that at some point, you know, in the middle of the process, you start to, you know, lights start to go off and you say, oh, oh, I seem to be writing about handicapped people a lot. Or, oh, I seem to be writing about people who've lost things. Or, oh, I seem to be writing about the ways that people are, are feeling isolated or separate and the, the strange ways that they sometimes come together. And those are some of the things that I had on my mind when I was writing these stories or that I discovered was on my mind. And and that separateness um, is in the title story mm-hmm. um, that when we were off air for a moment, we started to talk about and um, where it's visually it's you you do this great thing with structure where you're di- you're you're just dividing the page in half. Yeah, the two voices. Yeah, the story is told in two separate columns that run the whole length of the story. And in the left-hand column is the father's point of view of this story. And then in the right-hand column is this 12-year-old boy's point of view. And it all takes place on one night, um, a few days after the father has had an industrial accident and lost his thumbs. It's sort of a dark comedy. Um, (laughs) And... And uh, yeah, so the, the, their stories run simultaneously. And the times when the when the two characters are in the same room, then the same things are happening in each column. And when they have dialogue lines, they match up, they line up. Um, and um, I think I was, you know, as I was writing it, I was I was thinking a lot about um, about the busyness of our modern lives and distraction and the ways in which. At, at any given moment, we all have like at least three things going on at once, you know, where our phone is, is, you know, beeping and the TV is on and, you know, we got a magazine page open and our, you know, our, our friend is calling us from the kitchen. You know, there's, we process a lot of stuff nowadays all at, all at the same time and we're often distracted. And I was interested in how that distraction or that, 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 that kind of quality of perpetual distraction is influencing our, our psyches, 
our families and our reading and communication. But communication, yeah. exactly. So um, this is a you know a story in which the three members of the family are are all under one roof of one very small house on just one night, and yet you know there's just three different stories happening, and they're all largely unaware of each other's stories. You know they they don't really know what the other one is doing just in the next room or down in the basement, which I think is really common. You know, we all had our little private adventures in our parents' houses while, you know, they were in the other room. That's part of what it is to be a kid. And, and those the secrecy and the privacy of that is is important. But it's also, um, I don't know, it's kind of perplexing in, in it, when you consider that it happens in your most intimate relationships with your family. And, and was it important that the voices rather than a third yeah, there is a mother in the story as well. This is Free Speech Radio News for... Tuesday, the 31st of May, 2011. In San Francisco, I'm...